Like, I mean, you can't ex expect me to just leave the way I speak, the way I dress, how I eat, my trauma, my mental illness, all that stuff behind and come into this space and actually perform the job that you hired me to do. I come with all of that. And I think being able to say that has allowed me to be able to show up authentically and communicate in a way that's real and that actually is beneficial to the whole organization. Mi gente, dímelo, dímelo, what's good? It's your boy, Pavel, bring you another episode of the Quien Tu Eres podcast, where our mission is to redefine professionalism. You already know, every Tuesday, we have a different guest join us for a candid conversation around the journey that they've experienced between professionalism and authenticity. As a bonus this year, we've been giving you a second episode each week that we're calling Thursday Thoughts which, hey, I know it's Friday, apologies for the delay. But on last week's episode of Thursday Thoughts, I shared my experience at South by Southwest. And I kind of teased the fact that I was on a panel. Well, the name of that panel was From Sex Work to Cornrows. It's not unprofessional. And people have been asking me, like, is it going to be live when you're speaking? Is it going to be recorded? How can I catch it? Tickets are way too expensive to attend in person. I got y'all. I was actually able to get the audio from the conversation. So this week's episode is that full conversation from South by Southwest. Unfortunately, I wasn't able to get the video yet. So for now, this week's episode is going to be audio only. The clip you heard in the intro was a quick snippet from that conversation but now that you know what this episode is going to be about let's get into the full conversation welcome everyone um thank you so much for being here i know this is i think like one of the last panels of the day so we're really grateful that you're here um i know there's like a lot happening out there outside which means that a lot of times we come in here bringing a lot inside too. So if you want to, if it's accessible to you, if it feels good, we can get up. You can close your eyes, ground into the floor, feel it beneath your feet, and take a deep breath. Just let it out. You can wiggle your arms, your shoulders, your legs, just letting anything that isn't serving you being in this room right now, just let it go. Inhaling one more time, <sighs> letting it out, ah, a little better, right? And then we can sit. <laughs> so before I get into introductions and my beautiful panelists here with our great outfits, um, when I pitched this panel months ago, um, I had posted sex work to my LinkedIn professional experience, and it went totally bonkers, very viral, all over the news, which was not really exciting. It was mostly terrifying. Um, and I was excited to have this panel and come in with, and I'm checking in now, and I'm like, I do have some of that energy. Um, but really high energy. There was this, like, I knew how I wanted this to feel, what we wanted to talk about. And then two and a half months ago, uh, I lost my brother to police violence. And that sort of has like changed everything for me. Um, he stopped taking medication, the same ones that I'm on, SSRIs, the same ones that probably a lot of you in the audience also take. Um, and something happened with his brain and he's just started acting a little weird. 
and the police were called and five policemen shot him in his home. Um, the reason he stopped taking the medication, unbeknownst to me, was because he had a job interview. And he was interviewing for a position with a government agency. Um, and he was terrified he would get rejected and wouldn't get the job if they found out that he was on any meds, that, you know, any of his diagnoses. Um, and I share that with you because, for many reasons, partially because that's just like where I'm at and that's what I'm bringing here. Um, and at first I was really anxious that I was like, ah, don't let your personal stuff get in the way of work because that's super unprofessional. And then I was like, that's what the fuck this panel is about. <laughs> um, <laughs> um, thank you. And so, you know, it also, for me, I have his name tattooed on my thigh now. Um, I bring him here and his spirit here with me to remind me of how this conversation isn't just, it's not just fluffy. Um, it's really harmful and it's really dangerous how we view professionalism and the way that we've all sort of been forced to be boxed into um, and try to fit into essentially white supremacist and colonial constructs because that's where Pavel will define it for us moving forward because he has a great definition for professionalism. Um, and yeah, so anytime we have sort of an othering identity, another piece of us that, you know, whether it's visible or invisible, um, white supremacy, but also the, the workplace, the professional environment wants to flatten us and turn that into that one thing. And all of a sudden we become one dimensional expressions of whatever that othering factor is. And exactly, no, boo. Um, and like somehow we're forced and we try to fit into what that box is and assimilate and essentially strip ourselves and and like take away actually who we are, it's dehumanizing. Um, and so today this conversation, this next hour is really about deflattening, expanding, complicating who we are as human beings because that's what humans are. Um, and just being real and vulnerable with y'all and with ourselves. Um, and you know, this is like a whole container together. So your energy, we feed off of that and what we give, we want you to receive hopefully. Um, and so, yeah, so I'll introduce myself, um, we'll do a round of introduction and then we'll get into it. So my name is Ariel Lagozzi. Uh, my pronouns are she, they, and today I'm bringing more excitement than I anticipated, which feels great. Um, I'm also bringing grief. I'm bringing my very sensitive nervous system and my neurodivergent stuff with my little squishy ball that hopefully I don't puncture with my nail. Um, I'm bringing my queerness, I'm bringing my femininity, I'm bringing my Latinidad, my Jewishness, um, and I'm bringing all of that to this conversation, but also to my work as a writer, um, as someone who works with brands, and debut author, just got a book deal two days ago. Um, so yeah, that's me, and I'll take it, turn it over to Pavel. Hello, hello, all right, cool. Uh, so Pabel Martinez, what's up y'all, what's good? Um, founder and CEO of a company called Plural, um, and the mission of the company is to redefine professionalism by empowering authenticity. So what we're out there to do is really um, educate people on their emotional intelligence so that they can be more authentic, and by doing that, we'll redefine professionalism. 
Hi, everyone. My name is Rachel Owenstein. I use she, her pronouns. I'm the Global Head of Inclusive Innovation at Mindshare, which is a media agency within WPP. Uh, I'm also a content creator on TikTok, LinkedIn, and Instagram, and I'm autistic, and that's the lens I'll be talking about today, about how to be more neuroinclusive in professional environments. Hello. Hi, everyone. I am Jeeva Ann Wilkerson. I am the head of community care at Arise, a uh, telehealth and uh, mental health organization providing inclusive person-centered care to people with eating disorders or disordered eating. I'm also a yoga teacher, a trainer, a Philadelphian, a black woman. Uh, I use she, her pronouns. And uh, the energy I'm bringing in today is I'm going to try my best to be as authentic without disrespecting my Jamaican grandmother. <laughs> Not disrespecting who? My Jamaican grandmother. <laughs> also, can everybody hear everybody okay? Okay, cool. Um, awesome. So whoever wants to share first, but how have pieces of your identities, both either visible or invisible, affected you navigating your professional experience in your life? I mean, for me, it's interesting whenever people talk about professionalism and faking it, assimilating they think all of that stuff starts when you start working. Couldn't be further from the truth. Like, I was taught to assimilate at home. And some of those things were spoken to me, but some of those things were unspoken signals. Like, every morning I saw my mom straighten her natural curly hair just to be able to go into work and not, you know, have a microaggression. But my grandfather would actively tell me, do you see presidents and CEOs with piercings, tattoos, beards? No, act and dress accordingly. But at the same time, like, the signals that he was telling me was I had to be the best version of, like, an older white man. So that's what I did. So every day in, in, in corporate settings, like, I would just try to be the best version of an older white man. Yeah, I couldn't agree more with Pavel. We're taught these, these ideas from such an early age. And I can, think, I can think about my own personal experience on how, as an autistic woman who was late diagnosed, I'm 32, I was diagnosed at the age of 30, I lived my entire life being told to water myself down. I have very, very clear memories as a child of being told I was very bossy, very direct, sometimes rude, and lots of little girls are told they're maybe bossy and we water, we water that down. I think a lot of autistic women can relate to this where you have the intersection of ableism and misogyny that creates this very magical uh, and wonderful experience where people um, don't appreciate our directness, our bluntness. And now as an adult who has a much clearer understanding of all of my strengths, the things that make me um, a really smart, wonderful person, a wonderful leader, are all informed by the fact that I'm autistic. And I bring that with me every day to work, but that comes with a lot of privileges as, as a white woman, as a woman who... Um, who grew up middle class, who had, you know, the affordances of parents who understood mental health, 80% of autistic people are under or unemployed. I'm one of the lucky ones. I'm able to bring my autistic self to work. Many of us are not. And that's really what I want to unpack today to figure out how we can better serve the autistic and disabled community. That's awesome. Um, for me, I, you know, I am the daughter of an immigrant from Jamaica, but I'm also, I'm just from the hood. Real rap. I'm just from the hood of Philadelphia. And, you know, I'm also part of that Cosby generation. So I'm 40 and very proud. And, um, you know, growing up, the idea, the, the ideal for black success was the Cosbys. They were middle class. They were educated. And I always strive to be that. But I was from the hood, you know. And I, you know, the way I spoke, the way I dressed, 
the the family dynamics I had. You know, I came from I come from a single parent home, and so I always felt like I was trying to escape that or try to prove or surpass that that I was not just that, and I was never really allowed to embrace that. And it's never it's not anything that was like told to me by my family. It was kind of like you're the one, you get good grades, so you know, go be like Claire Huxtable, and um, that really never worked for me. And so I think. Over the last like few years, even I'm really just trying to deconstruct that notion of what it means to be a successful Black person, um, you know, and how I can be authentic as someone who is the daughter of an immigrant, who is from the hood, who loves being a Philadelphia, who loves living in Brooklyn and living in the hood, and embracing all that, and still saying, you know what, I'm successful. I can be a role model, and um, and I can shout that from the rooftop, and it's okay. Shout it from the rooftop. <laughs> um, so I, there's this statistic, I don't know who did the research study, but it's something like 76% of Latinos repress, repress parts of themselves at work, whether that be communication style, behavior, the way they dress. Um, and Pavel went super viral on LinkedIn. Is it okay that I, I just need to hear this story? I, I need to hear you tell this story. Um, and so I'd love to hear your, your former tech background story transition to sort of plural and what you're doing today um, and your exit story because I found it so I was working at a job where I was miserable and felt like I was hiding so many parts of myself and I found it so inspiring as someone who has like such a financial scarcity mindset to be like what he left what for what that's amazing um, and you put yourself first and your identity first and I think it's a really powerful story. Yeah, I mean, that stat is, is fascinating to me because, I mean, I dare y'all to look up any study on workplace experiences. It's full of anonymous quotes. And you got to stop to think, like, why? Like, it always says, like, black woman says, woman executive said, I'm just like, who are these executives? Like, I want to know who they are. But you got to think about, like, isn't that crazy that there's such a fear to even put a face and a name to Something as simple as like our workplace experience and things that people tell us and what happens that we have to go anonymous, right? So I launched a podcast called Quien Tu Eres, which puts a face and a name to each story. And each episode has a, um, you know, a different person talking about the conflict that they face between professionalism and authenticity. Um, and it's one of those first platforms that um, people are actually sharing these stories publicly, which which is dope. Um but in asking people to share their stories, like, I also had to dig deep and start talking about some things that I was taught to, like, hide as well. And one of those viral po one of the posts that went really viral was this idea of, like, salary transparency. Like, besides hiding our personality, like, we're also taught when we get into a job, don't tell anyone how much money you make. Don't tell anyone what level you are. And I was like, who, who is this helping? Who is it hurting? And I was like, it's only helping the corporations. Because at the end of the day, they don't want you to talk about it because they can literally pay both of us a different amount. So I just one day woke up on LinkedIn on Latino Equal Pay Day, and I just was like, here's my compensation package. I was working at TikTok at the time, and it was like, here's my bonus, my signing bonus, everything. And went viral, like 3 million views in like a week. And uh, the feedback was interesting. Like people that were around my age, millennials, like, thank you so much. This is going to help me negotiate for a better salary. But internally, executives were like, you shouldn't have done that. This is going to make your job harder, X, Y, and Z. And I was like, oh, interesting. And there were people that looked like me that were telling me that. So it's this idea of like even, what do they say, all skin folk and kin folk? Um, 
I think there's also just like a generational divide on the beliefs around what you should and shouldn't do in professional settings as well. So much. And not to like spill tea or whatever, but like one of a co-panelist that was supposed to be here today, um, I had to ask not to be here anymore. And they check off every like, you know, diversity box. Um, and they're a leader, a founder, and I really believed in, or believed that they were leading with the values that they said they were leading with. Um, and until I realized, oh, like, they look like any of us and talk like any of us, but the internalization of everything we've been talking about and the beliefs of, you know, basically they were leading as like an old white dude um, and putting down everybody else that wasn't acting that way. And so ultimately they're not here today, but it sort of really got me not just thinking, but it, it felt so visceral to realize that just because somewhere might feel safe because of the people that are in the room, um, if we're not each doing the work to deconstruct and sort of like pick apart what we're also carrying from those narratives, um, it doesn't really do anything. And so what I find really fascinating is that Pavel and I both exited organizations and you know have our own sort of careers that we manage now um, because we didn't feel safe or seen in the organizations we were in. Um, both Rachel and Jiva like are thriving in the companies they're at. And I just want to know like, what is working? What are the resources that you have? Like what is letting y'all like really bloom and feel safe and seen um, within a company? Because like, I have never experienced that. Sure. Um, I think first and foremost, um, being able to assert myself based on that, speak from my identities, basically. So um, I, I probably say at least five times a week, you know, well, as a black woman, because that's my perspective, you know, and because at Arise, we really do pride ourselves on providing inclusive care. I do, I, I say, hey, we got to model that internally. So we have to talk and based on our identities, we have to speak um, and represent the people that we're trying to take care of and um, provide care for. And so I'm always coming forward and I'm saying as a black woman or as someone who comes from, you know, this background, um, as the daughter of an immigrant, you know, as someone who grew up poor, you know, and I'm able to say those things and it's not this shock or this, oh my God, or this, you know, this feigning of, you know, uh, caring or this trying to silence me. So being able to really speak without that shock of the value, without feeling I need to be silenced or fearful that I might say something that might offend someone or that there might be consequences based on my perspective. I think that's the first and foremost thing. The other thing is I was, they, they offered me a really great salary that was very respectful, you know, and um, I hadn't been offered a salary that I felt like I could be very really proud of. Um, and so that was a really big thing for me, too. And then also just being in an environment where there are the, the, the leadership team is so diverse. I mean, there are six people who, and all of which are women, um, and I think one person, two people. So two out of six are white. And so we're always having conversations about, you know, the different backgrounds we come from. And it's not something that, it, it adds to it. It's not something that is seen as uncomfortable, or at least I haven't felt as though it's, people feel uncomfortable. Um, we're always encouraged to bring our full selves. And that means me even talking about, you know, stories that might make people feel uncomfortable, like my experience with racism, like my experience with 
um, sexism and all those different things. I can say those things and it's like appreciated as opposed to this silence, this deafening silence that makes me feel embarrassed or ashamed. I'm going to tell a bit of a story before I get to, to my point, so bear with me for a minute. Um, so in early 2020, right before the pandemic hit, I was at the lowest point of my life. I was struggling with depression, crippling anxiety. Um, I'd gone my entire adult life not knowing, not knowing what a life was like without depression or anxiety. I was very close to checking myself into a mental hospital, and then quarantine happened. And suddenly, all of that went away. I wasn't depressed, I, my anxiety got a lot better, and it was kind of weird because the entire world was freaking the fuck out, and believe me, I was too, but all of my own personal trauma was, I was managing it much better. And of course, that made me think, this is, something is not right here. And eventually I came to my, my autism diagnosis a few months later in early fall, and I'll be very transparent, most, most women who you see on social media or you see and the public and the press that are ta talking about being autistic have very similar stories to me, just to give context on how, frankly, like normal this type of experience is where a lot of autistic women and non-binary folks are realizing that they, they have a disability. So I say all of that because once I realized that I was not neurotypical and that I have a disability and that I am autistic, it took a lot of unpacking to understand that I was living a life that fundamentally was making me very, very sick, which is why I was struggling so much um, up, in, up until that point. And over the last two and a half years, I've been able to construct a life for myself and, and help myself thrive and no longer just in survival mode. And I really attest that to having good people around me and good leadership. You know, the, the leaders that I have around me, the, the teams that I work with, are all very neuro-inclusive. They understand that accommodations for disabilities aren't just us asking for special treatment or us asking for things because it would be nice to have. It quite literally makes me a better worker. Um, I'm almost fully remote. I've done the most creative, inspiring work of my career fully from my office at home, um, which I think we need to redefine what collaboration looks like, what creativity like looks like. For some people, it might be getting into a room and being part of a big brainstorm and generating ideas together. For other people, myself included, which is kind of ironic because I run a lot of brainstorms for a living, I need to be alone in my room to be able to think creatively. And that's okay. Um, so I think, you know, to answer your question, Ariel, directly, it's about people. So if you take one thing away from this and you bring anything back to your own professional workplace, listen to people around you if they're asking for things, if they're asking for adjusted work styles, flexibility, it's not because they're thinking, I think I want this. They're asking because they need it. Yo, that's, that experience, oh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> that experience resonated with me so much because I remember when I was working at Facebook and if y'all have ever seen, you know, videos of all these big tech companies, I mean, it's an open floors plan. It's like you working in West Elm, like sofas. Very nightmare. Absolute nightmare. <laughs> Well, for me, I'm like, all right, well, I got a desk. Why the hell am I going to work at a desk? Let me work next to, next to like, the Museum of Fine Arts. You know what I mean? Pretty much. I ended up getting labeled as unfriendly because I didn't work at my desk. I'm like, wait, what? We're not talking about my performance because I'm killing it. You t you're having a one-on-one -on -one with me because I'm not working at my desk? And that is it's just going back to that point about, like, this is how I do my best work. Like, do you want revenue or not? Nah? Yeah. 
And it's almost like, you know, I understand that some people might need an explanation, right? Like for me, if I'm, if I do go into my company's offices, I literally just lock myself in a, in a room because I cannot quite literally cannot work in an open floor environment. Um, so I understand having to explain to people, this is how I'm going to do my best work. But I also think it's, it's like, we need to shift this culture to tell people, um, or less about telling people and more about just accepting that other folks might be different. And if they need to work a little bit differently, it's not like we're being rude or uncooperative or not a team player. Um, you can just ask like, Hey, do you want to work on something together? Or do you want to find a different place to work? And maybe we do. Cause it is kind of isolating sometimes to constantly have to advocate for yourself and assume that the only way you're going to get work done is alone by yourself or in a different space than your colleagues might be. So open yourself up to your potentially neurodivergent colleagues who might want to collaborate and work with you, but they, the only way they can do it is by being alone and isolated, which frankly can be really hard. Yeah. And Ariel, you said something fascinating. You said you've never been able to feel accepted where you work. Never. And that was such a bold, like never. Like tell me about, for you, like when did you feel... What was something that you felt like you had to hide about yourself in these situations? Well, like, I'll answer the question with a question. Like, how many of y'all have ever felt like you've had to hide a piece of yourself at work? Whether it's, like, a tattoo, a piercing, an identity, a partner. It's, like, most people in this room. Um, and I just lost my train of thought. It'll come back. Um, I... People love my brilliance, whatever that means. Um, they love my energy or the way that I think or how something can filter through my system and like the output. And I'm sure all of us up here can resonate with this. And I'm sure all of you can as well. Um, where I have felt working for someone else that they wanted to control that output. And they wanted that output, but they didn't want or care about how I got there. And when I would try to advocate for myself of like, this is what I need in order for you to like have the thing that you want, it was seen as bossy or I was asking too much or um, just like irrelevant or I'm too sensitive. Um, and if I don't have what I need, then I can't, then it's just like I'm depleting myself and depleting myself until like you've burnt me out and you've got what you've wanted and I'm left with nothing. And so I've had to either quit or been fired for like literally because I do my job too well. And they, they were like, you're so good, but you're too picky. And that just seems really unfair. Cause I'm like, wait, I'm like crushing it. Like beyond even your wildest dreams. And you're still telling me that like, there's something wrong with me and you're not willing. You're telling me I have to change and shift rather than make space for like the complexities of who I am as a human being and all the different parts of me. And I mean, like, my grief that I'm coming in with today from my brother, but also all the anti-trans and anti-queer bills that are passing, like, every five seconds in this country. Like, I can't walk into a work environment without feeling that, without that being part of my, like, personal and, like, very close experience because that's my life. Um, and so when I have to compartmentalize and it just has to, when you want to, like, turn me into a machine, it's dehumanizing. And there's only, at least for me, I made the choice to, like, not no longer ever allow anybody to dehumanize me and to never dehumanize myself. And again, for the most part, it's meant like dipping and then being in a very privileged position, but also like working my ass off to be able to 
be where I am and also work with clients and work with people that want all of me and understand that in order to get any piece of me, you have to love and respect all of me. And that really, when I posted that thing to LinkedIn, that post about sex work, it felt because I was like, well, this is a part of me and I crush it here. And to me, I'm really proud of that. So I want to show you, this is like another proof point of like what I can do for you if you want to work together. And also if you want to work together, you got to love and respect all the pieces of me and my journey to help you crush it. And if you don't, like, please filter yourself out. Um, and it really felt like the biggest step. And I didn't, you know, I was like, I'll post it. And if I'm not comfortable, I'll just take it down. And then, you know, it got picked up by every news outlet. And I was like, oh, I guess there's no turning back. And it sort of, it sort of continues to force me to hold myself accountable um, where I'm like, oh, I no longer can walk into any space and pretend that I'm not you know, I'm a million different things, but that's not one of the things that I also am. Um, yeah. It just keeps me accountable, and I think that there's something that feels good about that. I, I love the point you said about, like, you're killing it at work, and I think that forced me to, right now, think about even the definition of professionalism, which I, which I think most people don't even think about. Like, we just think about what we've been taught about it, but if you look up the word, it's defined as the skill or competence expected of a professional. That's it skill or competence so you with the idea of you killing that at work but then someone looking at what you do on the weekends or outside of work what they're really saying when 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 i think most times when people say like that person is unprofessional what's the, what's the thing is like you point at somebody but there's always like three fingers pointing back at you what you really should be saying is i feel uncomfortable with that person's lifestyle choices yes. I, like i always bring up this example of like imagine y'all are parents and the teacher of your child has an OnlyFans page, we'll say. Um, is that unprofessional for the teacher to have an OnlyFans page? A lot of people be like, oh my God, yeah. Is it taken away from their skill of competence? No, but it's probably making you uncomfortable. The fact that maybe your child is going to see the OnlyFans page. Well, why is your child even looking at the OnlyFans page? Like, it's, it's not unprofessional. It's that you're uncomfortable about that. And that's something that you need to look at. Because it doesn't take away from my skill or competence. So. Yes. Thank you for defining that. And it's like literally still like literally still illegal in like most states in this country to not illegal. It is still legal to discriminate against hairstyle at work. Like what? And I have a statistic here that I wrote down for this occasion that black hair, textured hair, Black hair on a black woman is seen as 2.5 times more likely as unprofessional. Two-thirds of black women change their hair for a job interview. And 44% of black women under the age of 34, so that's like millennial to Gen Z, under the age of 34, feel an immense pressure to have straightened hair for a headshot. And like, how does that Why? take away? <laughs> like, what does that have to do <laughs> with their skill or competence? <laughs> Someone tell Nothing me. Nothing at all. <laughs> um, it's so funny I've always felt well up until recently the last maybe like three to five years I've always felt the need to to uh, present myself as overly professional I've always felt like I needed to overcompensate because I am a black woman 
and I've talked to a lot of black women about this, and we become mules at work because we're constantly this imposter syndrome. So outward appearance has become like, you know, I have to be super professional. So it goes back to the hair thing. So, you know, when I decided to like shave my hair on the side and put braids in, this is like my look now, or, you know, right now I'm wearing like this little hoochie little dress that I love. It. Love it. You know? And even like, you know, my red, black, and green nails and all that kind of stuff, really, I would have never done that five years ago because I knew automatically coming into that space there were gonna be so many assumptions about me. And if I come in and you know, talking about like my outside life, you know, I am someone who is extremely, I'm a very emotional person. I feel a lot of things. I live with anxiety. Um, you know, I've had tragedy in my life. I come into work and I'm bringing all of that, but I put a mask on. I had to do that in order to survive. And so it, it affected everything I did, you know, how I speak. So we were talking about code switching a little bit earlier, you know, and um, code switching is very interesting because I find that code switch quite a lot, you know, even now, because like the way I talk to you all right now is probably not the same way I'm going to talk to my grandmother, but because um, I really do fear my grandmother. That's like the second time I mentioned her because I'm really terrified of her. Um, but, you know, I find myself, you know, I would find myself overcompensating because I knew that they would see my hair when they would see the way I was dressed, or if they found out where I came from, or they found out that, you know, my brother also was murdered. He was murdered, um, you know, on the streets of Philadelphia. They find out my backstory, then it was like all these assumptions were gonna be made. And that was gonna, they were gonna question my competence. Or, you know, how much of that was gonna bring into the workplace? Was that gonna make them uncomfortable? Were they gonna have to address it, acknowledge it? And so I've spoken to so many black women about that who we just work our asses off so much harder than everyone else because we're just trying to combat all those assumptions. And it does impact how we look and that impacts how we feel about ourselves. So how do you like, I mean, you're here now, you're you. And I feel like I've even in the last like year gotten to witness this incredible journey and transformation you've been on. How do you like, how do you stop that shit? Like, how do you start saying no for real and, and like, yeah, I don't know, just tell us. Um, you know, honestly, I'm on this journey towards freedom. And just like, I've realized the more free I am, the more I let go of all the, that pretense, the more I just really walk into who I am and say what the hell I wanna say. So I go through this process all the time. It's like, okay, what do I wanna really say? And then I, then I say, okay, how can I just really, really say it the most honest way possible? So if I'm really pissed off, you know, I could say, I'm really upset with you, Jane. That was, that was not fair, what you said. I'm going to say, Jane, that was fucked up. You know, and I kind of find the middle ground somewhere in between that. But I'm just like, you know, I have to just say it. I just use my voice. And I don't, I don't censor myself the way I used to because it hasn't gotten me anywhere. And I've realized the more authentic I am, the more I use my voice, the more I show up in a way that's most comfortable to me. Because when I'm comfortable, I'm... I'm I'm the best I could possibly be, you know? And like, and that's, and that's in my environment, that's the people I'm around. I make sure I create spaces for myself where I can just truly be myself and feel good. And I don't settle for anything less, not at all. If I'm not comfortable there, I leave. What's the point? Well, I think like you are becoming representation. Like I, we were in the green room, we were like, yo, you never know who's watching. Somebody's always watching, someone's always listening. You got to be the representation that you wish you had when you were younger because someone that looks like you is going to see you and be like, oh, shit. Wait, she got the braids? She... Wait, that means I could do it. And that's just how it's going to create a ripple effect across everybody, right? Like, 
yeah, like people need to see them. People need to see themselves represented to think that it's possible for them to do it. But if we're all faking it at work, then we're just gonna continue the cycle. You can't see it. You can't be it. Exactly. It's interesting. I don't know any other autistic leaders. I don't know any other autistic women leaders. Um, the people that I do know are really struggling in their careers. They're struggling to figure out their their place, their their role, um, how they can thrive, how to ask for accommodations. And this is why on I've created a platform on on my TikTok and and socials about this topic because no one's talking about this for autistic people and people with disabilities. Um, you know, Jiva mentioned this this idea of wearing a mask. Um, there's something that autistic people do called masking. Essentially, it's hiding our autistic traits, either for safety, for social acceptance, um, or, or other reasons. And while masking is extremely traumatic, it's why I was depressed and anxious for most of my life, because I was performing an identity of someone that I wasn't actually being. It is a privilege to be able to mask, because I can, if I need to, hide my autistic traits so people will accept me. I won't be in social danger. But you can imagine... You know, the, the idea of performing constantly, it's really, really fucking traumatic. And most autistic people that you know are probably masking most of the time, especially at work. And I think we need to create forms and stages for neurodivergent people to just be their authentic selves. We're not being rude. We're not being weird. It's just who we are. Um, we say what, what we mean and we mean what we say. So, you know, on the point about representation... Um, one thing to add, I was on a panel last week with other autistic creators and neurodivergent creators, and one of them had their fidget with them. And I just thought, man, I've never thought about bringing my fidget on stage with me. I do a lot of public speaking. And to be able to see other autistic people who were just like, had their fidget on stage, and that was super fine, that gave me permission to do it. So now that's my promise to myself to always have my fidget on stage whenever I'm giving a talk or joining a panel. I love that. I, I really love that you said that and, you know, we're talking about representation and just like, you know, also with me, you know, I lived with an eating disorder for a really, really long time. And, you know, that I talk about that being a black woman who lived with an eating disorder, who's still dealing with my own body image challenges. And, you know, it's been it's been amazing to see how many people are like, thank you so much for talking about that. Because one, talking about mental illness, and then two, talking about something that has been always, you know, seen as a white woman's illness. And so me coming forward and saying, yes, you know, even though, you know, the, the people have this belief that, you know, all black girls know how to eat. And that's actually a book by Stephanie, some wonderful woman, Stephanie, Stephanie Covington Armstrong, you know, that idea that I was someone who was living with, you know, anorexia and also, you know, shrinking my body, but also shrinking myself on the inside, making myself small so I can fit into society and be safe. And you mentioned safety, you know, and constantly doing that, just really just like this cycle of just starving my body, starving my, um, shrinking my voice for, for everyone else. And, you know, breaking through that has been like the most profound thing I've ever done. And it's really impacted all of my relationships and it's really impacted how I show up in spaces. And it's really, and I think it's really allowed space for other black women, black women in particular, to be able to say, you know what, I'm living with this and I don't have to do this anymore. So representation 100% matters. It's like, as we're talking about all these things, I feel like even, you know, whatever, the most neurotypical, straightest, whitest, cisest 
man at work is still engaging in the act of, like, I call it, it's like perform, uh, professionalism is a scam, but like the act of professionalism, right? Like how many people here in this room have used like the corporate jargon that nobody else understands because you wanted to like sound better or like move the mouse on Slack so that your green light would pop up? Like, I don't know, all of us. Um, and like, what is that, like, what is that even doing? And when we talk about code switching and masking, um, there's this sort of, you know, like culture fit in companies and like the assimilation required and how, like, what do you all think is another way to sort of create a, create certain like norms and like communication styles that don't require people to perform all the time and to pretend like, oh my God, I love my job so much, but like, no. I think, I think sometimes like you can't want me here and not want me here, here. You know what I mean? Like I am what you hired me to do, you know? Like, I mean, you can't ex expect me to just leave the way I speak, the way I dress, how I eat, my trauma, my mental illness, all that stuff behind and come into this space and actually perform the job that you hired me to do. I come with all of that. And I think being able to say that has allowed me to be able to show up authentically and communicate in a way that's real and that actually is beneficial to the whole organization. Yeah, I mean, oh, sorry. Go for it. Well, um, I think, it, I mean, it's it's rare that I'm not the only black person in a meeting. So I think simply by, like, having a diverse workforce, like, I think a lot of people will feel more comfortable because a lot of, a lot of people of color, like, they go, in, they go into rooms and if there's a lot of white people, like, we feel the pressure because we put, many times, unfortunately, like, we put white people on a pedestal and we're like, we have to assimilate and so that they can accept us kind of thing. And uh, yeah, I think diversity would help. And it's not just diversity of culture. Like we're talking about a lot of different identities here. Um, I think that'll help. To build on that, I think it needs to be at the leadership level. You know, I look around sometimes and it's usually at the mid level, like somewhat leadership, but not in the senior executive roles that we're seeing diversity happen. Um, and that's really where the change is going to need to happen. And, you know, people who believe in these ideas of burning down the traditional standards of professionalism and folks who are on board with not enforcing you have to cosplay as a professional when you come to work, but just being your normal self. I mean, it's, it's like, it's weird. Why, why have we decided that people have to flatten themselves and have to compartmentalize themselves? We're, we're all more than one thing. So it really has to come at the senior executive level. Of course, culture matters throughout your organization. But if it's not coming from the top, it's not going to get cascaded down to the rest of the organization. Yeah, and I see, I mean, every single one of us up here is talking about we thrive and are most creative and do our best work when we feel safe. And that's any human, when we can sort of show up. And I think, Rachel, you pointed out, and, you know, you travel all over the world talking with like, you know, some of the biggest companies and clients that seem to rank number one, like creativity and innovation as like what they want from their employees, but then aren't giving us like the safety to actually be there. So, I mean, what do y'all think sort of like this conversation means in terms of being able to innovate or look forward um, and sort of begin leaving behind some of the old stuffy stuff 
we've been talking about, but not just like paying lip service to it and like actually doing it. Well, if you're not in a senior executive role and you're someone who's in a management leadership or even just starting your career, if you feel safe to do so, you should be modeling these types of behaviors and ideas with your teams. I think the the privilege that I have is that, you know, working in media and, and advertising, for the most part, I'm around pretty progressive people who believe um, in a lot of the ideas that we're talking about. It's not always the case, and my work will suffer and show when, when I'm not in those rooms where I feel safe to be my authentic self. But I think that there's room and space for everybody to model these types of behaviors, ideas, even in the smallest way. You know, I work with some Gen Z folks on my team. I work with some Gen Z folks throughout my organization. They don't give a fuck. Like, they are fully on board with all of this we are talking about. You know, Ariel, you said creativity matters, and it's, it's ranked as one of the most valuable skills from senior executives. You're not going to get creativity from your teams if you're requiring people to compartmentalize and section off who they are as people. Um, and I bring up Gen Z in particular because they're extremely creative, I think, because they don't care. They are fully cool being their 100% authentic self. And I think all of us would do well to, to model that ourselves. I think, too, like you got to have some difficult conversations or maybe uncomfortable conversations around, like, what does authenticity mean to you? And when do you feel comfortable and when do you feel uncomfortable? Like, I do a bunch of speaking engagements around authenticity in the workplace and redefining professionalism. And it's fascinating, like, you ask, you know, the crowd of, of employees and they're like, you know what, I actually love the culture within the organization. I feel comfortable being my authentic self here. But every time I speak to clients, I feel really uncomfortable. And like, that's only, a, that's only an output that I was able to get by having a simple conversation, simple yet difficult conversation, right? Um, and I think by uncovering some of those things, you can start to create environments around, all right, well, where, why do you feel unsafe to be your most authentic self in front of clients? Is it the client? Is it just all clients? Is it external speaking? Whatever it is, but you can start to, you know, change certain things to make people more comfortable, which leads to a better output. I think it's in along those lines. I think it's also holding your employers accountable for what they say they believe in. Mm. So, you know, if, you know, a lot of people are saying inclusivity and we, you know, we want everyone to feel safe here and all that. It's like, okay, I don't feel safe when this happens. <laughs> what are you going to do about that? I want this person to be hired because I feel like we need more diversity. How are you going to handle that? And let them show and prove, you know, I mean, 100%, you just have to hold them accountable and be unapologetic about it because ultimately, I don't think, I don't, I don't believe, I know that I won't be fired for that, but I don't think a lot of, you can't, you know, just say, if you feel safe doing so, this is what I want, this is what I need, this is what I observe, show and prove. I think what you just shared too around like saying like when something happened, going back to the, the earlier point around like you can read all these studies about workplace experiences, all of, full of anonymous quotes, um, I, I think a lot of people don't really know. I mean, it sounds weird, but like they don't really know that some of these things are happening within the organizations because we don't talk about them because we're, we have fearful. We're fearful for like retaliation, the impact on our personal brand, all of these things around just being our authentic self. But you'd be shocked to realize like by you talking about it, you'd be like, oh, shit, I didn't know that. Let me bring that into a room. Let me be more thoughtful next time I'm in the room with X, Y and Z person. Um but we're so scared to talk about these experiences because of what I just mentioned. But we need to create that representation, let people know it's okay to talk about these things openly because that's how you create change. You were going to say something? Sorry. 
I was just going to add, um, I think a really underrated skill is to learn who are the people that really matter when you are trying to be your authentic self in a professional environment and who are the people that just like, it does not matter what they think. Um, and that took me a very long time to learn throughout my career that not all feedback is good feedback, not all opinions matter. And learning how to filter feedback from people is a hard lesson to learn, but it's something that I think would serve you very, very well if you're trying to unmask or trying to um, not code switch or whatever it is and be your authentic self. Because the reality is, is there are, unfortunately, if you are in a corporation or um, in a larger company, there are some people who maybe you will still have to navigate these tough conversations with. Um, and then there are people that you won't have to. And there are some people that are key decision makers that you might have to win over and, and try and change their mind. But learning how to filter feedback throughout your career is a good thing in all, all scenarios, but especially in this conversation, because not everyone's opinions matter. I feel like everything, the like through the through thread of this entire conversation has to do with acceptance, has to do with like making, like expanding into some space. But I feel like there's so much compassion um, that has to go into this process because we're all like unlearning this stuff. And even within that recently, there's been like all this LinkedIn drama in like the strategist community and in this like era of cancel culture and depending on sort of the superficial identity that you have, all of a sudden it's okay to sort of like banish people to some island that like cancel island as if like they're not gonna exist again, which is basically just like the prison industrial complex, hello, in my opinion. Um, and just like being afraid to have actual conversations or if someone like fucks up reaching out to them and being like, hey, what was that? Like what's going on? Um, or like, this is how that made me feel instead of necessarily needing, to, if, if you have access to be able to like talk to them, instead of like putting them on blast on like, and having everyone else tear them down without actually having context or understanding what's going on. Um, and it feels like it's such a, we like keep being in this cycle and circle of, of dehumanization and like all of us, no matter what we look like, no matter what our identities are of like stripping anybody being able to strip anybody down um and if someone's like a white man then all of a sudden he's just a white man and that's it and that's all he's ever gonna be and like no that's also a human with like experience and traumas and tragedies and like we also have to make space to to understand them as human and like have it be back um and i think just have compassion around conversations and there's no question but no that's so true this idea of like I mean, it goes back to those difficult conversations. Like, we're afraid to have them because we're scared that we're going to say something, like, bad and get canceled. Um, or, you know, something as simple as, like, bias. Like, people are scared to admit it. Like, we listen. I have it. I am full of bias. I'm biased, too. And I'm the guy up here talking about authenticity. Like, when I go to a cafe and the barista doesn't look like a Brooklyn hipster, I'm getting out of there. Because <laughs> in my head, I associate good coffee with... Like, Brooklyn hipster, more tattoos, piercings with the gauge, all, like, I'm like, that person knows how to make a cup of coffee. Like, if I go in there and the barista looks like my mom, this little short Latina lady, I'm getting out of there. She'll know how to make a latte. But we have to, we have to go into those, we have to go into those cafes and realize, like, oh, shit, how someone looks has nothing to do with how well they can make a coffee. In fact, the machine does most of the work, right? But it takes a level of self-awareness to be like, oh, shit, I'm biased, let me work on learning that. And a lot of people don't take that step to get there. Okay, I, I have no idea how much time we have. Le ten, oh, okay. 10 minutes. Ooh, okay. Did we jump to 
Okay, quickly, before we like open to questions, if anybody has them. Um, all of us, we're all like, obviously we're all here. Um, we've navigated all of these things with some modicum of success, whatever that even means. Um, and we're not just here, we're here speaking as ourselves, as on the journey to like total alignment with whatever that means and being able to like have a professional career that expresses us and where we feel safe. Um, what resources, like whether community, people, songs, music, events, have each of you used to sort of like strengthen and remind you of who you are to like keep going? For me, it's been finding the autistic community online. You know, that we, we make up only 1% of the world's population, so we are quite a small group and community. Um, and for all of the garbage of social media, it has been able to connect and um, help me find the resources and the support that I need. I now have autistic friends all over the world. Um, unfortunately, I don't have a lot of autistic friends in, in real life. Um, that's been such a game changer for me, using, using social media to find my, my people, my, um, my connections of, of folks who are struggling with things equally. Because a lot of the things that we struggle with in professional environments can be kind of niche. You know, I can't call my, my mentor or call my, my work bestie and just talk through some of this because some of the challenges that I might be facing aren't things that they're really equipped to, to navigate, let alone someone like me who's in a leadership role. Um, so obviously we all use social media, we're all connected to other people, but the ability to find people in such niche spaces to connect and uplift each other has been so wonderful. Um, and I'm hopeful and optimistic that in more professional environments, professional environments like we're in right now, um, I will be able to find more neurodivergent people. I think the conversation is becoming more mainstream, more um, of, of the moment. And maybe in the future, we can, we can have an actual professional setting for autistic people that actually works because, unfortunately, a lot of these spaces aren't really equipped to, to support us. Yeah, I'll double down on that. Community is so important because a lot of these conversations... Our, a lot of these feelings, a lot of these conversations, we don't end up having them. So what happens is that we feel alone. And when we feel alone, we feel like we're the problem. We're not the problem. In fact, just the simple idea of you finding out that there's others out there is like, oh, shit, I'm not alone. There's other people out there. And that takes so much pressure off of you. And that can, you know, the more people you find, you can also see someone's looking at you. It's like, oh, shit, she's an executive and she has this, this, and that. Like, it's possible for me as well. Like you can be that possibility for somebody, um, which also I'm sure feels great. Yeah. yeah. Therapy, 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 and more therapy. <laughs> Hell yeah. <laughs> like coming into myself, doing that work to really just find out who the hell I actually was and am has been the most profound thing I could ever do. Because then I was able, to, once I knew who I was, then I was able to go and seek out community. Because it's very easy to go and get caught up in people who are still pretending. <laughs> you know, there's a lot of people out there who got a lot of followers because they're pretending. And so I had to do the work to figure out who I was first. And then I was seeking out those people. And those people are actually not the most popular people, but they turn out to be my people. Yeah. Yes, plus one to all the above. And and I think weirdly what's coming to me, I'm just thinking of Bad Bunny, LOL. And <laughs> I think like creators and I don't know if I would use like celebrities necessarily, but artists who are so even just like aggressively, forcefully 
taking up space and expressing themselves and exuding, at least like right from what I'm feeling, authentic confidence and being like, oh, I, I, I want to be closer to that. And that, that is what I'm looking for, like towards. And that artistic expression of message and being able to weave in sort of taboo clashing things all in like a song or, you know, whatever it might be, um, being able to sort of like, yeah, just be inspired by someone's colors, by the way someone sings, by, you know, the connection to heritage or culture um, and knowing that there's like people on far bigger stages than I might ever be on um, being themselves and grounding themselves and like, that's who I want to be friends with. So like, that's what I want to keep being closer to myself with and hopefully, you know, it like attracts, nobody can, nobody can know you unless you show them. So like show them who you are and then let them come. Um, okay, we're running out of time, but if anybody has any questions, we had a beautiful slide with all of our names and our contact uh, emails, um, but maybe quickly where everybody can like contact or DM or whatever. Oh, yeah. Um, so, Pabel Martinez on LinkedIn. That's P-A-B-E-L Martinez. Um, and plural is the business that I founded. So, P-L-U-R-A-W-L. Uh, Rachel Lowenstein on LinkedIn. It's just Rachel without an A, just E-L. Uh, and then Lowenstein, L-O-W-E-N-S-T-E-I-N. And then I'm Rachel Eson on all other channels, I-S-S-A-N. Jiva Wilkerson, that's G-I-V-A Wilkerson um, on LinkedIn and at Jiva Wilkerson on Instagram. Ariel Lagozzi and Lady Savage, S-A-V-A-J on Instagram. Um, do we have time for like one or two questions if anybody has them? Yeah, does anybody have a question or two potentially? There's, yes. a, there's a mic. There's a All right, thank you for the panel. And my question is just very broadly to the panelists. Being a sociologist, we often talk about coercion, right, and forced palatability, and this idea of code switching or masking or whatever. And so my question to you all is, why do you all think we don't call it what it is, and it's coercive violence? Because it has both mental and physical health consequences, but we won't call the thing the thing, which it's violence. Why do you all think that is? I mean... I think it's a lack of vocabulary because I'm be honest, that's the first time I've ever heard it. So I think it just comes back to education. Just like when I found the word professionalism, like what it actually means, I feel like most people don't know what it means. So raising awareness and educating people for me. Also, it's just like fucking scary, I think, to be in a coercive environment and say that. Um, and I said it and then I had to leave. I never used that word though. That's a good one. Uh, but I had infinite privilege to be able to do so um, and still be here. Um, I was going to say fear. Fear of retaliation, 100%. Thank you for that question. For those of us in this room who are entrepreneurs or business owners or leaders, as a lot of this lecture has been about, you know, in the workforce or like as employees, although I'm sure many of these concepts are almost exactly the same, not exactly the same, what can we do as society to improve inclusions of like, you know, leaders who, you know, have, you know, all these things that you mentioned of like neurodivergency or like, you know, eth different ethnicity than like the old white man. Like what can leaders of our sorts, you know, do to make 
the notion of like a leader, you know, even an entrepreneur or leader different than, you know, the old white, you know, man. If you find yourself in a place of, of feeling like someone is being unprofessional or you feel upset or threatened or whatever by their behavior, their actions, whatever is making you feel triggered by, by, by that, I think the first step you should take is, why do I feel that way? Because your answer will usually be it's something about you and it's not something about them. I forget, at some point we talked, we talked a little bit about this, but it's usually projection. It's usually something that has to do more with your own lived experience than, than the person that you might feel upset by, that you want to reprimand or whatever it is. Um, so I think it's about looking internally first, which I recognize, <laughs> ask someone to be very self-aware and emotionally intelligent, which a lot of people aren't. But if, if we could all take one thing away, that's what I would encourage. I mean, it goes back to what I said earlier. Like, I think everyone should have, like, a authenticity conversation. Like, what does it mean? Where do I feel most comfortable? Where do I feel most uncomfortable? And then hopefully your manager will do their job to make you feel comfortable given that conversation. And I would say, like, being a leader isn't – it's not like a pat on the head. It's, like, it's almost the opposite. It's, take, it's removing yourself from a situation a lot of the time. Um, and it's listening to what the people that you're leading are needing from you. And if you're sort of like telling them what to do without listening what they need in order to do it, then that's a coercive environment. That's a coercive leader. Um, so it's really like asking them, how can I best, I'm here to support you. You're here to support as an entrepreneur. You're here to support my mission. How fucking dope is that? That like you're a whole human being that believes in what I'm doing. So like how can I best support you to continue believing and to continue helping me make my dreams a reality? And I would just add, put your money where your mouth is. You got four people up here you could hire. <laughs> you can, you uh, know? We didn't get paid to be hire here. Hire some experts to come in and have those conversations and actually train you and train your team. Hi. Um, so I worked on the Black Harris professional campaign that you had those statistics from. So thank you for sharing that and shedding light on hair discrimination. Um, and, and implore everybody to do more research, too, to sign the Crown Act petition. Um, my question for you guys is, I, it sounds like all of you have been either one of the only or the only of various identities of yours. How do you manage um, sharing a perspective that's very valuable in that position with the emotional pressure and turmoil of having to represent an entire community, knowing that that's your lived experience and not necessarily the lived experience of an entire group of people? I actually say it. So I'll say, as Jiva, as a black woman, but as Jiva, this, I say, you know what? I know this really great expert that you can bring in who will train all of us. I actually do say we can train people. Let's go get this person to come in who feels comfortable speaking from that perspective because, like you said, I'm only one person. I think from the autistic perspective, I will never talk about the autistic perspective as, like, my experience is the singular experience. I'm a, again, a white woman who has a lot of other privileges afforded to, afforded to me, being black and autistic, being poor and autistic, being um, trans and autistic, a lot of autistic people are trans, um, looks a lot different than what my experience looks like. Um, while we might share a lot of the same struggles and strengths, the reality of being autistic is that it's very multidimensional and, and not something that is singular or monolithic like any identity group. But I especially think if you have a disability because we need tangible accommodations afforded to us that I quite literally couldn't speak on behalf of the entire autistic community, nor would I want to because of the, again, the privileges that I have afforded to me. 
And I think it's like a reminder, again, the beginning of the conversation, like wanting to put us into a box. So like every identity is fluid and a spectrum. So like as a queer person, there's like a whole alphabet soup of letters that like fit under queer. I can speak from like my perspective and like the alphabet, whatever that I fall under um, or the letter, but I can't speak for everybody. Like Latinidad is a full spectrum, like full of different races. Like you can't have one person with one experience come in. Same with like being black, there's colorism. There's like such a different experience and ableism and autism is a spectrum. And I think we get caught up in like, oh, here's, here's the one. So like flatten yourself and now you represent everybody. Um, and same, I'm just like, okay, I can't speak for everybody, but like this is my experience and what I've read on these forums or what I've read from this book or what I read from this statistic and can bring other voices with me. Um, but like never pretending that, at least for me, that I'm ever gonna speak for anybody other than, than myself. Um, or if I'm, if I'm the one with the platform or whatever it is and inviting those other voices here to speak. Thank you. Hi. Um, first of all, thank you so much, uh, Jiva and Ariel, specifically. Like, thank you for sharing the stories about your brothers being lost to violence, because that's like giving me the courage to ask this question. So, um, I was just wondering, what's your advice for someone with a criminal or addictive background to land a decent job while also being authentic um, about themselves and their experiences? Thanks for that question. Um, I don't have a criminal background, so I can't speak from that perspective, but I can speak for someone who has seen people with criminal backgrounds um, own and like integrate and totally embody that experience and not be afraid of it and share it with compassion and context and bring it to the table as a, as something like, that makes them incredibly resilient, that makes them incredibly like powerful, that makes them brave, that makes them courageous. Um, and I have never, anybody that's ever shared any identity with me where they own it and accept it, it, at least for me, always forces me to, own, to sort of receive it with such beauty and, um, and like see the power behind that experience. And like there's only power behind that experience. But unfortunately because of the world that we live in and all the stigmas that we have, um, it can be really hard for someone with that experience and that background to come into owning it and come into being confident about it. Um, and that's not, that's not by any means their fault, but that would be the biggest thing I will always um, impart. And the only thing that's ever worked for me with all of my history of everything um, is that it's only when I'm able to own it, accept it, and talk about it that I actually see everyone around me all of a sudden is just receiving it and accepting it. Because I do. 100% and like finding community too because there's strength in numbers. So if you have a bunch of people owning and accepting themselves and speaking about it, then it can't be ignored and that's how you destigmatize. So really finding your people and being very loud about it because then it can't be ignored and then people can't, if someone discriminates against you, then you can clearly point out that's probably why they're doing it. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. and and. The final thing I would say is that for like all of us, just like allyship for anybody with any identity, like if you don't have them and you have whatever privilege of like not having them, whatever that even means, because I don't think that even exists, um, like talk about it and make space for it and, and 
like sort of set the platform, make it safe for the people with those identities and those histories to be able to come forward and talk about it and take the steps towards owning it for themselves. Because like, so like be this, the safe space for someone else. Thank you for the engaging panel. Um, what are your perspectives on taking medication to fit in with the neurotypical if it's not critical? Can you repeat the question? I couldn't hear you. What are your perspectives on taking medication to fit in with the neurotypical if it's not critical? So I'm not someone who takes any medication. Um, and for autism in particular, there, there is, it's a neurotype. It's not a mental illness. It's not a disease. There's, um, it's different than ADHD in, in some ways where there is medication. I can give you my perspective as someone who's, again, not medicated and doesn't take any medicine right now. Um, but obviously it's just, just one person's perspective. I think regardless, if taking medication makes you feel better and helps you, that's a good thing, right? If it, if it makes you thrive and you're not struggling and that's a choice that you feel good with, you should continue doing what is right for you. Um, if you are taking medication and it's in service, and I think this is probably what you're getting at with your question of trying to fit in or assimilate and it doesn't feel right to you when you don't feel like you're, you're, you're being your authentic self. Maybe that's something to consider and think about. I don't think anybody should have to medicate themselves in order to fit in if it's not what's right for them. Um, but again, obviously that's a very personal and individual choice based off of your own context and your own situation. Um, but if you feel like you're in those scenarios, that might be something for you to think about and, and talk to um, people who are better equipped than me to to navigate that with you. And I have ADHD, which I don't medicate for. And I started taking medication, SSRIs, for anxiety and depression, which then helped me realize my ADHD, and which helps my OCD also. And it wasn't it wasn't critical. And... That's why I kept not doing it. And then once I started taking it, I realized, oh my God, my entire life has changed and become a lot easier and a lot more manageable. And I'm able to do a lot more things that I want to do. And probably my partner would say that it was very critical. <laughs> I started taking my meds. Um, and I was so, I was very afraid of them. Um, but I had the support that I needed. I had the information I needed. And ultimately, it's like completely changed my life and made things so much more accessible to me where I didn't have to struggle. Like, I did all the things, but I struggled so hard every day. And I thought that that was just like, I thought everybody was just struggling all the time. And then when I realized they weren't and there was a way for me to not have to struggle that much, it's, I still struggle, but just not that much, it was really, really helpful. So it's really, it's really what feels right for you in a journey. Mm -hmm. Thank you. I feel like maybe that's time. I don't know. Um, thank you all so much for being here, for being so present, for being so receptive, um, for the head nods, for the hearts, for the claps, for all the things. Thank you, everybody here on this panel. Um, we sort of went into it just like the only intention was to be able to be up here and be ourselves, and I feel like we were able to do that with each other. Um, it can take, at least for me, like an enormous amount of self-regulation to be up on a stage. And I was like, cool, this was, this was so easy and so nice. Um, thank you also to B, my partner, who like forced me to do like 10 retakes of the initial pitch video so that we could like make it really good and land 
uh, land the conversation. I'm very grateful. Um, and to, you know, all the companies and everybody that, you know, everybody here flew out from, we all flew out from all over the country, in some cases internationally, um, to be able to be here. And I'm sure many of you too. So thank you. Um, you know more or less where to find us. And that's a wrap. Thank you.